Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along Ideas and guests from my show come from all over, and today's guest came to me because I loved reading a Quaker publication called Western Friend. Back in the May-June issue, the overall topic for the whole issue was on needs, and there were a number of great articles featured, but one in particular caught my attention. It was called Overcoming Need, and it was written by Sister Convianza del Señor. She caught me in a number of ways, starting by talking about a Methodist Quaker monastery in Honduras called Amigas del Señor Monastery. And she starts the second paragraph by saying that, quote, people have become sloppy in how we talk about needs and wants, unquote. Wow, can you say nail on the head? This by a woman who grew up with the name Prairie Cutting. The stories and thoughts in the article were profound, so I tracked down Sister Confianza and found that she and Sister Alegria were planning a trip to, of all places, Wisconsin, where I live. So we set up a call, and thankfully, they can join us today by phone, not from Honduras, but from right near me in Boyceville, Wisconsin. Sisters Confianza and Alegria, thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Well, thank you, Mark, for inviting us and contacting me after my article appeared in the Western Friend magazine. It was a surprise and a delight to receive your email when we're down in Honduras. (laughs) This is Sister Alegria. Thanks for inviting us, Mark. It's nice to know that you have such a radio show here in Wisconsin where I grew up. What brought you back, Sister Alegria? This is my 50th high school reunion year. I had just given up the idea of attending the reunion party because it would be very costly. Well, one of my high school classmates did very well in a material way, and he paid for round-trip tickets from Honduras to Chicago so that Sister Confianza and I could attend the reunion. So you're down living in Honduras since, what, 2006? I started going to Honduras in May of 1999, which is about six months after Hurricane Mitch, and did medical brigadas, we call them, medical mission trips. It didn't take long for me to realize that that was not a style of health care that suited me. So I began going for longer periods of time and working at the public health clinic. The public health clinics do the immunizations, the prenatal care, the long-term continuity care where you hope you're providing some education to your patients, not just the urgent care in and out stuff. I had 
a period of time in which I questioned whether I ought to be doing that because I didn't feel like it was a strong leading to do it. I was just doing it. So that required a little bit of spiritual searching. And I finally decided that it was a good thing to be doing. So I would continue to do it as long as I could do it as a spiritual practice, meaning not attached to outcome. And so I continued to do that through the end of 2005, staying as long as four months at a time. So there's a piece of this that maybe isn't intuitively obvious. I believe that you were practicing as a pediatrician, is that correct, before you went down? And did you also have a spiritual practice that was big in your life? It seems like these two are maybe competing or needed to be melded firmly in your life. I was a United Methodist who attended church every week but wasn't in love with God. In 1992, I had burnout and I quit work. And that's when I really started getting serious about God. I did a lot of reading. For over a year, I decided I was about 45, 46, and I said, I've been reading things written by men for 40 years. I am going to read things written by women now. I need this to bring some balance into my life. And I made exceptions for reading about mysticism. This is post-1992, after you've had your burnout and you're finding a spiritual center to your life that wasn't really there before? That's right. And so then within a few years, I began to recognize that I really needed a lot of spiritual practice. And now I can say that it seems as though I have a higher need than most people have for spiritual practice. It was in 95 that I began attending Multnomah Monthly Meeting, the Quaker Meeting in Portland. I would go to early meeting at the Quaker Meeting House, and then I would go over to the Methodist Church, Rose City Park United Methodist Church, in time for the choir warm-up, because I sang in the choir, and then worship there for late church. And then in the evening was brass rehearsal and choir rehearsal. Tuesday night was Dances of Universal Peace, Thursday was sometimes midweek worship. That was the unprogrammed worship at the Quaker meeting. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. And then a few friends of mine started with me Friday noon music worship. At the Methodist Church. At the Methodist Church. Yeah, so the whole Methodist and Quaker together. Mm -hmm. So I tell my Quaker friends that Methodists are Quakers who sing. And I tell my Methodist (laughs) friends that Quakers are Methodists who know how to keep their mouth shut. (laughs) I should be better at keeping my mouth shut sometimes, I'm afraid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So let me check with you, Sister Confianza. I assume maybe you connected at Multnomah meeting. In fact, I didn't. I was raised Methodist, and in fact, my parents are both Methodist pastors, and so are some of my grandparents and great-grandfather, too. That's kind of the family business, we sometimes say. So I was raised in a Methodist church. I loved going to worship and singing and, you know, the whole program of worship that we had. I was quite involved. I'm 33 now. I was born in Portland, Oregon, and my folks went to seminary when I was a baby, and I've lived in Minnesota. I've lived in New York State. I've lived in Idaho, and I've lived in Washington State. I Oh, California was where my folks went to seminary. And Sister Alegria was living in 
Portland for about 20 years between the mid-80s to the mid-2000s. So our lives did not converge till later, except that she was involved in the Methodist churches in the Oregon region. In Methodist lingo, we call it a conference. Like the yearly meeting, we have annual conference, and it's also a geographical region. So the Oregon-Idaho annual conference. We were each involved separately, but we knew some of the same people, it turns out. I went to college at the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington, which is United Methodist related. It was founded by the Methodists. After college, I wanted to do service work. I knew at about age 12 or 13 that I wanted to follow Jesus. I had a Bible. I'd read it. I read the Sermon on the Mount. You know, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Feed the hungry and take care of the needy. You know, I grew up middle class. And I felt it was time to do some volunteering, to do some service work that I hadn't done in my life. So I joined the Lutheran Volunteer Corps, and it it was related to AmeriCorps. In fact, I could get the AmeriCorps financial benefits of a big chunk of money to help pay off my college loans. And I got a job in St. Paul, Minnesota at a neighborhood house on the west side of St. Paul, helping people get food who needed it. Since I was a kid, I'd wanted to learn Spanish. So I, you know, learned to count to 10 uh, (laughs) somehow. And I wanted to learn Spanish. And I finally, in about eighth grade, got to start taking Spanish classes, took it in high school and also in college. So I got through advanced Spanish grammar classes, but hadn't had a real opportunity to use that. But when I got this job with the Lutheran Volunteer Corps, then there was a lot of Spanish-speaking immigrants in that neighborhood. And so I did use my Spanish in that work. And I managed in that summer between college and going to St. Paul, I spent four or five weeks in Guatemala, did a Habitat for Humanity volunteering, building cement block house for a poor family, and also at a Spanish language immersion school. In any case, it was an interesting experience, and the Lutheran Volunteer Corps has several what they call tenants or core values that included community. So so I lived in a household with other volunteers. We were all pretty much right out of college, but we had this interest in living in community together, so we shared our, our money for buying our groceries. We had shared meals together. Another value was simplicity and sustainability. So we did what we could, did a little composting, tried to buy eco-friendly products in the house. (laughs) Social justice, that belief and interest in the equality of all persons and doing what we can to help make our society more equal, more just. And then faith, it's faith-based. We were all came from Christian backgrounds, but we didn't really have a very strong faith component in our household. So those values were all important to me, but I wanted to be living them more deeply, and especially the faith aspect. So I found a local church. It was an American Baptist church. So here was a Methodist in the Lutheran Volunteer Corps attending a Baptist, a good liberal Baptist church in Minneapolis. But I was really interested in deepening my spiritual life, my relationship with God, and I guess defining my values. I could say, you know, what do I believe about different things? How do I live that with integrity? And I still, you know, had this love for Spanish language. And after having visited Guatemala for a few weeks, I I really like to go back to Latin America for a longer period of time, like a year to really get immersion in the culture and the language. So how might I be able to do that? And I I was thinking about what I might do after my year in the Lutheran Volunteer Corps. 
I was receiving the United Methodist sort of email newsletter for the Oregon Idaho conference since I was from that area. And there was this little announcement that said, Beth Blodgett seeks travel companion to go to Honduras for a few months. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. I don't know who this is, but, you know, I would like to spend some time in a Spanish-speaking country. It was 2005, and it would be one of these medical mission trips. She'd be working at the public health clinic, but she always liked to have a travel companion. But it started in August, and my program didn't finish till the end of August. And I thought, well, it conflicts, so I won't worry about that. But my mom, as a pastor in Oregon, received the same email newsletter, and she sent me an email. She said, Prairie, this sounds like you. Well, maybe this is something to pursue. So I sent an email to Sister Alegria, who at that time was going by her birth name, Beth, and Sister Alegria invited me to come down for a whole year. Beginning in 2006, she was going to be founding this monastery, Amigas del Señor Monastery. Well, I'd like to go for a year. You know, I'll be able to get cultural immersion, Spanish language, and, you know, this is religious-related. I'd be working on my relationship with God, my spiritual life. That sounds good. I don't know anything about monasteries or nuns. I've seen the sound of music. (laughs) Um, But I knew it had to do with God and interesting lifestyle adventure. So I said, yeah, I'll come down for a year. So we went down together in 2006. Sister Alegria had been sort of developing this thought for the monastery, had had lots of ideas and certain things, already a sense of how the life would be. And after a, a year, I felt like, you know, I'd like to stay a little longer. We've been planting a lot of things and foods that take more than a year to grow. I'd be interested in seeing, do they produce what happens? And we've only been actually living out here at what is the monastery for six months. And so it'd be nice to have more time to really experience this life. So with some discernment, I think we had a clearness committee even at that time. I was just beginning to learn about Quakerism. We started using the monthly meeting for worship with attention to business in about January of that year, 2007. So I had a clearness committee. Yes, I'd like to stay on another year. I added like three months. In any case, I stayed on a second year. And after my second year there, I actually had an experience during unprogrammed worship. So one Sunday morning, we were having worship on our porch, in the shade of the porch, but looking out to the south over the hills, over the greens, over this gorgeous scenery. I've always felt connected to God, to the Holy Spirit, to the Creator in creation. So I was sitting there with this quiet time, and I just had this sensation of, you know, I could see myself doing this long term. This feels good. This feels right. Maybe this is the life for me. So I came for a year and stayed, and I've now been there almost 10 years. (laughs) So I assume, and actually I have no idea how you, Sister Alegria, went through being a nun. I mean, evidently you both are, and I don't, I grew up Catholic, and I've been Quaker perhaps since, you know, 20 or something like that. So I'm used to ideas of nuns and all of that kind of thing, and there's different monasteries, and you've got your mother superior, and you've got all of that. Do you have those kind of things? Are those kind of things in either the United Methodist tradition or I'm pretty sure they're not anywhere in Quaker tradition. So how did you go through your novitiate and who is your mother superior, etc.? We don't have a mother superior. So all of our governance is by Quaker process. 
So we use the monthly meeting for business. There are some decisions that are just no-brainers that we don't take to the meeting for worship with attention to business. But we call special meetings when we have important things. We don't have the hierarchy. We do recognize that I have more life experience and more spiritual experience than Sister Confianza. But that doesn't mean that I'm right. There is no monastic tradition in the Methodist Church or the United Methodist Church. So I grew up with this prejudice against that. And I think that's one of the reasons why it took me until I was in my 50s to really recognize my call. That's one of the reasons why we are so happy to have any kind of publicity, is there are thousands of people in this nation who have a religious calling and have not realized it. Oh, maybe that's for you. So it was for me, and it took me a long time to recognize it. Within the monastery, we have taken very seriously the monastic tradition of aspirant, postulant, novice, and professed. But we have another, which is sojourner. I parallel the monastery to a university, that you could have a true calling to attend university, get your associate's degree, and go out into the world taking what you've learned there. Likewise, a bachelor's degree or a master's degree or a Ph.D., But there are some people who stay. They get their Ph.D. and they stay and they teach and they become a professor and they stay there and then they're professor emeritus. So we recognize a true calling as a calling to come for a year or two or four or five for spiritual formation. So Sister Confianza came as a sojourner, someone without an intention of staying longer, but she had a pretty strong call. You know, God just jerked her around. It's like, oh, you don't know what you're doing? Don't worry about it, baby. I know. Um, (laughs) And she demonstrated a significant amount of monastic instinct. But one thing I'm missing, though, Sister Alegria, is where did that structure come from, or how did it get created? Okay, we both started out without that. We did more and more reading intensively in the monastery to get more of a sense of what do other people do? What do other orders do? There are two orders that have had the most influence on our order. One is the Carmelites, which is the Reformed Carmelites founded by Teresa of Avila. They're the prototype contemplatives. The other is the Little Sisters of Jesus. And we didn't even hear about them until 2009. And they were founded in 1938 in France. But theirs is contemplatives in the world. They also live very poor. So the commonality is the poverty, the true poverty, not the alternative delights more kind of poverty, but world-level poverty, a level of poverty in which we spend $200 a month to live, sometimes less. I think our record was $37. So it's poverty by world levels of poverty, not by U.S. levels of poverty. So it became clear to me that Sister Confianza is a contemplative, although it was very unclear that I was a contemplative to me. And then I started thinking, you know, there's this old saying, and it's like, tell me who you run around with and I'll tell you who you are. So who's my favorite friend for reading Teresa of Avila? Who do I live with? A young woman who's obviously a contemplative. So I finally had to recognize, I guess I'm a contemplative. 
I want to remind our listeners that you're tuned in to Spirit in Action. I'm your host, Mark Helpsmeet. This is a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web at northernspiritradio.org. And on that site, you'll find more than 10 years of our programs for free listening and download. And you'll find links to our guests, like to Sisters Confianza and Alegria. And you'll find bonus excerpts for today's program, nuggets and gems that we just couldn't fit into this broadcast. There's also a place for comments, and we love two-way communication, so remember to post a comment when you do visit. There's also a place to donate, and so if you can help us out to make sure this effort goes forward, please click donate when you come to NordenSpiritRadio.org. Even more important, though, than that is to support community radio stations. Community radio stations in the United States provide an alternative source of news and of music that you get nowhere else on the American airwaves, and it's so vastly needed. So please start by supporting them. Or I might also encourage you to support Amigas del Señor Monastery. We have Sisters Convianza and Alegria here with us today. They're fortunately in the United States for a week or two, and their way was paid up here because I guess on the $200 a month that you live on, that there's no way to save enough for this kind of a trip. I just imagine it doesn't work very well. Where does your money come from? Our money comes entirely from donations from the United States. Our living, however, includes a lot of gifts and favors from our Honduran neighbors and friends. You were mentioning, Mark, about, you might say, what distinguishes us from traditional monasteries that people may have heard of. Most people have heard of just Catholic monasteries. Well, yes, the Catholics have, I suppose, the most monasteries, monks and nuns that we've heard of. Orthodox Christian churches also have monasteries, and of course, Buddhists do as well. Protestants, there's much fewer. The Episcopal Church and the Anglican Church have monasteries and monks and nuns, but we're much more rare among other denominations. Amigas del Señor Monastery, Methodist Monastery, is fairly traditional in many ways. We're women only. You know, a monastery is going to be either women or men. There are three traditional vows that monastics take, at least in the Western Christian tradition. Every different group or type of monks and nuns may have a slightly different variation, but these three are quite basic, and that is poverty, celibacy, and obedience. Many orders, or at least some, see poverty as, I mean, yes, spiritual poverty as well, as Jesus talked about, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will I forget what they'll do also. yeah, <laughs> I can't remember. What will they do? They will receive the reign of God. They will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Something like that. Something like that. We learn these things in Spanish, you know. <laughs> and our spiritual formation classes are mixed. Some of them are in Spanish. Some of them are in English. So are you saying that you're teaching yourselves from books, that there's not someone who's overseeing you in the process? That's right. That's exactly what we do. And... We have a couple of friends who are Jesuit priests who have been very supportive of us. And the one who was in his 80s was saying, so you're teaching yourself. And he laughs. <laughs> and that's exactly what we're doing. We're teaching ourselves because there aren't any Quaker nuns to learn from, or there weren't any Quaker nuns to learn from, and there weren't any Methodist nuns to learn from. Now there are. One day we were talking about people who would come and join us, and Sister Colantianza said, but they'll have us. Right now we have a sojourner, Sister Uncle Bear, 
she's spending this month while we're traveling helping out at the local orphanage. So she will spend a month of spiritual formation and living the monastic life without any promise to be doing it longer than one year. And then she'll return to university the following year. Unless, like with Sister Confianza, <laughs> the leading takes you, of course. Yeah. You never know what God will You never know what God will say. One of the things that pertains to your early question about how people see us is that we do wear habits. I think it's very important that we wear habits. The world needs nuns, and the world needs to know they have nuns. It's important that people can see that there are people who have made the commitment to live 24-7 for God. So our habits are fairly simple, as you might expect from Quakers. We have blue dresses, short sleeve, simple cut. Imagine paper doll dresses. The front and the back are pretty much the same. Square neckline, short sleeves, wrap-around belt, and we wear white blouses under them. We wear blue flip-flops. We have blue kerchiefs, but we don't wear them all the time. We only wear them when it's cold, like when you're in Wisconsin, for example. (laughs) And then a kerchief isn't enough. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So we are obviously in uniform. Anybody who sees us going, and we travel two by two, you see two women wearing identical outfits. They're in uniform. Unfortunately for us, the uniforms of the public health clinics are usually blue and white. So people ask us if we're nurses. They ask if we're doctors. My history in that community is long, and so lots of people call me doctora. I don't correct them. But our blue is Marian blue. Now, Marian blue doesn't mean much to most Protestants, but we read a lot of Catholic literature and Catholic monastic literature. So I feel like wearing Marian blue is in solidarity with our Roman Catholic sisters and the horrible repression that women in the Catholic Church have suffered over the centuries. So we'll stay with our Marian blue. When I say Marian blue, Marian meaning Mary, the mother of Jesus. When you made the comments, Sister Alegria, that the world needs nuns, I'm wondering if there's a difference in Honduras, the opinions about that versus in the United States. Actually, the phrase nuns in the United States these days, more often, it refers to this segment of the population which isn't identified with any religion. They're not necessarily atheists or anything like that, but they choose not to affiliate with anything. And that percentage historically was steady at 3%. But starting in the early 90s, early mid-90s, that started growing to where now it's something over 15% in the United States. So there's a lot of nuns, but they're spelled N-O-N-E-S in the United States. <laughs> so my question... What does that mean? <laughs> that, that they're not they're Catholic. Not, they're not Protestant. They're not any religion. They are none of the above. None oh, of the above, yes. Thank and, you, Sister Confianza. <laughs> and so that has been growing in the United States your comment, the world needs nuns, N-U-N-S. Is that a sense that you get support for in Honduras, in the United States? Uh, this church is supporting you or the Quaker meeting under whose care you're working? Or is that a sense that you're getting directly from the divine? Oh, from God. Well, actually, it's a no-brainer. And I think I've said that because it's slightly more acceptable than to say what I really believe, which is something that Douglas Steer has made a good point of, and that is what the world needs is saints. 
That's what the world needs. The world doesn't need more engineers or elementary school teachers or doctors or nurses or lawyers or business people. What the world needs is more saints. And that's our job, to make saints. And so let me just ask you about that. You you referred to one young woman who evidently is there right now as you folks are up here in the United States. Have you had other visitors, other sojourners, other postulants? Are there other people on the path to not necessarily sainthood, but at least nunhood in your order? For about five or six years, it had just been Sister Alegria and myself, Sister Confianza, and we began to notice that good changes had been happening in each of us through the spiritual practices that we were doing as part of this monastery. Each of us were changing for the better, becoming better persons, as best as we could tell just by looking at one another. (laughs) And we said, you know, good things are happening in us, and here we are on this hilltop in Honduras, and nobody has ever heard of us In a way, we are being selfish by not sharing this life that we can see is transforming us into the people that God would have us be, becoming more aligned with Holy Spirit. And so in about 2010, 2011, we started to do more publicity. And for the year of 2013, we offered what we call the summer program, seven weeks that women could join us and experience our monastic life with us. And two young women joined us. One was a year out of college and the other one was in her 30s. One came from Washington, D.C. The other one came from London, England. They both had somehow heard about us through the little bit of publicity we'd done through university connections and other connections through the Internet. The two of them joined us for seven weeks. And that was the first time that anyone had come longer than a few days to, to see what we were up to. We offered that program again last summer in 2014, and no one joined us, but we didn't do as much publicity. We actually had a tour in the United States in 2014 when Sister Alegria and myself both traveled a little bit in Oregon and here in Wisconsin in the Midwest. And a woman contacted us who was living in, well, she's living in England, but she's Australian, a Quaker woman, and spent four months with us in the fall of 2014. She had intended to come for a year as a sojourner, but for health reasons and and some other personal reasons had to leave in December. But she spent that time with us. And even while she was with us was when we got the connection from Sister Ankelbert, who is with us now. When we began to offer this summer program, this spiritual formation program at Amigas del Señor, we recognized that each of us, having grown up in the Methodist Church, That denomination is predominantly white in the United States. There are black Methodist churches in the United States. It's still quite segregated. And we felt, you know, we believe in racial equality. And even though we didn't cause the inequality and the segregation that exists in the Methodist church or in the Quaker community, we can do something about it now in our lives. That's the point. Uh, one of the points, you know, in living a monastic life, in, in any kind of life you might choose to live with integrity is, like Mohandas Gandhi said, be the change you want to see in the world. Live those values that you claim to have. So we said we can do something perhaps about this racial division, this 
And as we know in the United States, racial inequality and discrimination isn't just about personal prejudice, oh, I don't like black people or whatever, but it's institutionalized. Blacks tend to be poorer because of the deep historical segregation. So we decided to look up historically black colleges in the United States, and we found some that are related to the United Methodist Church. So the Methodists, even in the, in the United States, who had come over from England, often have started schools, and, and across the Americas, uh, I suppose across the world, often start schools when there are not other educational opportunities provided by the state or other organizations. So many colleges in the United States have been founded by Methodists, including colleges for African American people. There's a college, Bennett College, in Greensboro, North Carolina, was founded for African-American women in the late 1800s. And it's still going. When we found out about them, we contacted them, and in particular, you might say their study abroad office, and said, you know, we're a Amigas del Senor Monastery. We're Methodists. We're outside of the U.S. Opportunity for Bennett students. And at that time, we had some money to be able to offer a scholarship for a woman to attend our spiritual formation program. So that first summer in 2013, one of the women had been a student at Bennett College, and she was able to come on scholarship. And then this year in 2015, Sister Ankobert also was a recipient of that scholarship through this connection that we've made with Bennett College. This year we offered a 12-week program from May through August, and she came for that really eager to do spiritual work, wanting to deepen her relationship with God, and by the end decided, you know, this is doing good stuff, and more time will help me do more. <laughs> and so she's chosen to stay on a full year. And so she's the first woman who is staying for that much time at the monastery. So it's been very slow in our, you might say, growth, but it is good and it's exciting. I have the sense that maybe you needed to make sure you were firmly planted. You had to do your own spiritual growth to be ready to reach out. We were founding the monastery, even though Sister Alegria already had, you might say, this vision and this call. Together we came and founded, established this monastery, developed our daily prayer schedule of, of lauds in the morning, vespers in the afternoon, and compline in the evening, in which we read Psalms, which is a long monastic tradition, but we have developed our own cycle of using the Psalms as well as other Bible readings. And in during lauds in the morning, we use a little devotional magazine, I suppose, that's called The Upper Room in English, but it is an international publication and it is published all over the world in many different languages and is not of any one particular denomination, although it also was started by Methodists. It is now interdenominational, and it's available in Spanish, and it's now distributed also in Honduras, and so we're a part of that, and we read that every day. Every daily reading or meditation is written by an individual, a, a regular person but who is following Jesus somewhere in the world, and it's really an encouragement to hear from people living a Christian life, trying to follow Jesus in their context, wherever in the world they are, from whatever background they are. And every day there's a Bible reading, there's a little prayer, and there's a, they call it a prayer focus, a person or group of people you might pray for. Today it was something wonderful. This just the past Sunday, we were participating in a Methodist worship service, and Sister Alegria had been invited to speak. And 
the upper room meditation that morning asked us to be praying for medical doctors. And while she's a medical doctor, so we knew people, uh, millions of people across the world were praying for doctors, which includes Sister Alegria in this day. And it just felt to me like a really nice encouragement. You know, I want to step back. This all started because I read an article in Western Friend, and their website is westernfriend.org. I have a link to this article on nordenspiritradio.org. The title of the article was Overcoming Need, and I believe you wrote it, Sister Confianza. It was so compelling to me. It, it actually mirrored some of my sense of important issues around need in the world. And again, part of my background is I was a Peace Corps volunteer in West Africa, the country Togo, from 77 to 79. I've traveled a lot. And I tend to look at our society, the extreme waste and overabundance and, and I think soul numbing. It actually, we get distracted from the important things by all of the baubles we have in the United States. And so what I read here was extremely valuable to me. And so I wanted to cover a couple of the points, and then I just want people to go and take a look at it. Again, you can find it if you search for Overcoming Need on the westernfriend.org site. But some of this is part of what I'm sure you've learned and maybe motivated you to be in Honduras now. Did you come to Honduras with this perspective, or is it something that's grown while you've been there? It's certainly grown during my time in Honduras. When I look back on my life, I see threads, what you might say, sort of incipient values since I was very young. I have kind of an artistic, creative side. I liked to make little crafty things. Say I enjoyed cross-stitch. And so it was fun to do that. But it's like, what do you do with cross-stitch? How much cross-stitch does the world need? You know, it's like, okay, we can decorate a few more rooms. So even though I enjoyed it on a certain level or thought it was pretty, we don't need more stuff. That value, I don't know, I guess has been in me since I was young. And when I was considering getting a job after my year in the Lutheran Volunteer Corps, I thought I could work part-time and earn enough to live, to support myself, live simply. I wanted to live in community. That's a call or a leading I definitely had sensed for a long time, even before coming to the monastery in Honduras a shared household, you know, it uses fewer resources per person in terms of heating and water and electricity, all of that. I could get a job at a coffee shop. And when I thought about doing that, because if you work more than half time, you can get health insurance and those basic benefits. But when I managed myself working at a coffee shop, there were two things that really struck values that I hold. And one was the waste, the paper cups that I would have to be filling each day and would be filling the trash cans and the plastic, you know, just but this trash that is like, I couldn't do that with a good conscience, be giving people trash, (laughs) stuff that would just end up in the trash. And I also knew that I enjoyed the coffee, specialty coffee drinks. And if I worked at a place like that, I would just be drinking more and more. Uh, Whether I got them free on the job or was buying them, I'd be consuming something that I don't need. And I've also recognized that I have a a tendency towards addiction in myself and in my family. So being around so much coffee would not be good for (laughs) me. Um, So I did not apply for such a job because those values and self-knowledge, I suppose, was there. I was, from a young age, did a lot of music. And my parents are quite musical. And I learned to play when they offered, you know, band at the school where I was attending at that time, they started in fourth grade. 
And so I wanted to play the flute like a friend of mine had played. But when I went in to the band teacher to find out about this, she said, oh, we've already got 20 people signed up for flute. Why don't you pick something else? And I looked at the pictures of the instruments on the wall and said, I'll take that one. It's the clarinet. And so I started learning the clarinet and played through high school. And I guess I was pretty talented. So when I went to college, it seemed like studying music was a real option. To me, it was fairly obvious. I, you know, I enjoyed playing fairly good at it. So I actually went to college with the idea of majoring in music, and I got a scholarship playing clarinet in band. And so I stuck with music major, even though I, I had some questions, like, I don't know what exactly I do with this, but you have to start at the beginning, pretty much, to be a music major. There are a lot of requirements in terms of classes to take and everything. And I didn't do a lot of other exploring, which a little later on, as I started to take a wider range of classes, I found other things that were interesting. But by then, I was so entrenched already in the music program, it was easier just to stick with that. So in any case, I got a Bachelor of Arts, but with a major in music, playing clarinet and some singing. But I never knew what I wanted to do with that. And you were asking the question sort of about needs and wants. And, you know, as a musician, I was classically trained. So what, I could play in a symphony and provide music for rich people? That didn't seem like it was serving a need in the world either. And I had this sense of wanting to do things that that's actually helpful. And I believe there is something good about music, about beauty, you know, art. I don't think these things are wrong or bad, but they are excessive. In the United States, the seeking pleasure, the self-indulgent lifestyle, as we often term it, it is more than we need. We make music at the monastery. We sing. United Methodists have a long tradition of singing as part of our spiritual practice, as part of our teaching and learning. You know, music is important to us. But it's not performing music for an elite group. It is we all participate in this together. We are singing. We are praising God. We are. You're doing the work of saints, I think. Well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing that you mention in the article in westerntrend.org, in this thing about overcoming need, you talk about fasting, which I have my own connection with this. And so I've fasted on and off over years. I would fast one day a week. And maybe this is not so typical in Quaker world, but it's certainly pretty typical in the Catholic world that I grew up with. But, you know, I would fast one day a week just to kind of reset myself from the excesses. And starting 15 years ago at our yearly meeting, the annual gathering where the Quakers region come together, I started fasting for the three days of that. So I'd just do a water fast for three days. I did that the first year. There were six of us doing it together. And every year since, either I, I've at least done it and maybe one or two other people have joined me doing this. Wow. But it just seems to me such a necessary reset with our culture around here. How do you use fasting there at Amigas del Señor Monastery? That's a beautiful practice that you have in that. And I think you're right in terms of when we're living in this overabundant, this excessive culture to do things to help yeah, get ourselves back on track. So at Amica del Señor Monastery, all of our practices have come, you know, developed through a process. But the tradition that we have established now is that each week, every Thursday is our day of fasting and spiritual practice. Now, 
we have regular spiritual practices every day, but it is even in our fairly tranquil daily life and weekly life, it's still good to have these times of more concentrated centering. So generally when we are healthy, and it's, it is something to consider, uh, am I physically healthy enough to be doing a fast? We, you know, we eat our regular meals on Wednesday, and then Thursday we don't eat until mid-afternoon. We have our Vespers at about 2.30, and after that have what in Spanish we call the entrega, breaking the fast with a light snack, fresh fruits and vegetables if those are available, toasted corn tortilla, and then we'll make our dinner and have dinner or our supper a little bit earlier than normal. So that's our regular fast to do each week. And one of the ways we talk about it, that, that I say fasting is a way of thinning the veil that veil that sort of between oneself and God. So fasting, taking away, putting things in perspective. So food is a need, right? We have to have some intake to keep living as an organism. Air, water, food, those are basic necessities for physical life on this planet. So there's no question that as humans we need food of some amount in some time just to live One thing in monastic life or in a spiritual life a person might choose to do is give up something good for something better. And even in fasting, we're giving up that need, that good food during those hours for something better, for really seeking God. It puts our bodies in perspective. My body doesn't control me, doesn't rule over me. In our North American consumerist culture, it's all about me getting what I want, feeling good, all this food and other pleasures that can make me feel happy and feel good, let my body tell me how I feel. So, you know, a fasting practice can be on many levels. You might abstain from, some people do, I'll just stop eating chocolate for a while. Take away that lovely, delicious treat (laughs) because I don't need it. But it's not just to go, instead, I'll I'll eat caramels instead of chocolates because the chocolate was the thing. As I said in the article, I believe that God really fills our true needs. As humans, yes, we have wants and desires and often a sense of emptiness, something's missing in my life, what is it? And we tend to turn towards these material things to fill it, whether it's food, whether it's consumer products, the latest technology whatever it is, to help us feel a little better and more satisfied. But I really believe that it is only God, only that spiritual connection that can really satisfy our deepest needs. So by setting aside food for a time, it reminds me that even food, which is a good and necessary thing, isn't everything. Instead of eating a meal at breakfast time, at lunch time on Thursdays when we fast at the monastery, We'll do spiritual reading. We'll read from a book that we know has good words to give us to fill that spiritual spiritual food instead of physical food for that time. That's my experience, too, when I do this annually for the three days. At the time of meals, I meet with other people who are fasting, and we share deep things together. It's like, wow, I just got a bonus of a, a couple few hours in the day because I'm not spending it on something I don't really need to spend it on. And so I end up feeling enriched out of it overall. One of the things that has made fasting more comfortable for us is that in Honduras, fasting is highly respected and many people fast. So you might fast to let God know you're really serious about this prayer 
as a way of if you're having a petition prayer. Or you might fast for discernment. And both of these are very, very common. And we both grew up in households where fasting wasn't done. So it's helpful for us to live in a culture where fasting is an acceptable and understandable thing. Yeah, it probably doesn't make much sense in the United States where what we're supposed to do is be good consumers. Fasting just goes against the grain of something that I, I think poisoned our atmosphere. And it has to do with why so many of us are obese or why so much food waste happens, etc. There's many reasons. There's many more good thoughts that people can find by reading the article Overcoming Need by Sister Confianza del Senor in the Western Friend. And again, westernfriend.org is a place to find it. And there's actually a number of other good articles in that same issue. I found it very rich. And something so ill-considered in the United States where we just drown under stuff. But that leads me to a question that I wanted to ask you before we finish. And that is, and either one of you, Sister Confianza or Sister Alegria, can answer. Why Honduras versus the USA? When you were originally going down there, Sister Alegria, because you were a pediatrician, because you could help out medically, that made sense. There's a, a need there. But it sounds to me like there's a hunger, spiritual hunger that's here in the United States that you could meet it here, you could meet it down there. Why Honduras? Well, I think I could hedge a lot. I was called on the phone one day and I was asked, would you like to go for a medical mission trip to Honduras with us? So that was, I take it, the Holy Spirit's call to me to be in Honduras. I take that now, not at the time. When it became clear that I was called to a monastic lifestyle, to live in a monastery founded on poverty, it became clear that I would have to found that monastery. I have a lot of people in the United States who love me. Some of them are relatives. I could say this quite harshly, and I will. They love me more than they love God. They would be quite happy to subvert my calling to poverty and I wouldn't have been able to prevent that. I would not have been able to live in poverty here in the United States because I have so many wealthy people who love me and who would have kept me from truly living in poverty. In Honduras, I can live in poverty. We were talking about this a few days ago. We could probably now found a house in the United States. We could we would be capable of doing that. So why Honduras and not the United States is one question. Why Honduras and not Togo or some other much poorer country in Africa? And my best understanding of why Honduras and not a much poorer country is that God understands my weaknesses and that it would be too hard for me and I wouldn't have been able to hang on to my half grain of faith if I had gone to a country that was really, really poor. Do you have the same answer, Sister Convianza? I agree with Sister Alegria. I think another point in choosing to live in Honduras is we're living among poor people. We're living more or less at the level of poverty as our neighbors in rural Honduras, which again would have been hard to do to live at that level in the United States. There are some brave and committed people who are doing their best to live at a very low standard of living in the United States to be using fewer of the world's resources 
to be consuming a smaller amount so that there's more for everybody. Well, in Honduras, it's, you might say, pretty easy to do. We're living at a level that we know, we figure we're using our share, our fair share of the world's resources as opposed to the lifestyle that most people live in the United States, which is using far more than their percentage of the world's share of natural resources. And so that's another part of the answer. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there's many more answers people get just by visiting. You can read the article in Western Friend. You can follow the link. This monastery is under the care or in care with two communities. One of them is Oak Grove United Methodist Church. And so if you go to oakgroveunitedmethodist.com, you can find out a connection to Amigas del Señor there. I have that link on org. but you can also follow. They they have a covenant of caring with Multnomah Friends Meeting, which is Quaker meeting in Oregon. So between the two, you can find messages shared, a little bit of a uh, every couple weeks posting that you can find out what's going. And maybe you're one of the people who's led to sojourn with them or maybe even take one of the bigger steps. But in any case, Amigas del Señor Monastery is inspirational. That's the way I experience it. And again, I started with the article in Western Friend. And just having talked to both of you, I so love the work of spirit you're doing in the world. You're doing it in Honduras. If you were next door, I would want to come and fast with you. But I guess I'm not an amiga. I'm an amigo. So I don't know if it would work quite as well. Maybe I'd have to found the monastery for Amigos del Señor. That's right. Really, I respect so deeply the work that you're doing. I do hope that it grows and thrives because it's exactly the kind of change and enrichment this world needs. Thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark, for having us. It's a pleasure. It's a privilege. Thank you, Mark. That was Sisters Confianza and Alegria del Señor. Look at the links on northernspiritradio.org and listen to several bonus excerpts from this interview. Interesting stuff that we just couldn't fit into the broadcast. Special thanks to Andrew Jansen for production work on this program, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.